Radio Mano Papachango. is here in the house I should start talking about myself in the third person would that would that be charming well Chris thinks that uh, this episode is with Hunter Motts the great Hunter Motts he's been on before I don't know twice maybe you seem to like him uh, so I keep inviting him back I don't know what it is I don't know why some da- some episodes get twice as many downloads as other episodes. Um, I think I mentioned this before because I don't really know how this whole thing works. If you sort of read the description and say, oh, that looks good and download it and others, you're like, hey, fuck that, that's boring. I have no idea how, how it works. But some some episodes get a lot more downloads than others. And Hunter consistently, when he's on the podcast, uh, a lot of people download it. So there you go. A crowd favorite. Uh, So back by popular demand, Hunter Motts. Um, I'm doing a thing now on Patreon. If you're a Patreon supporter, as I hope you are, you see that I've put up a poll. And I'm asking... uh, If you prefer that I do one episode a week, the way I've been doing it for these many years, uh, so there's consistency, because when I started doing podcasting, which was back in the early days of podcasting, if you looked at any sort of online advice for podcasting success, the number one tip was generally consistency that people want to know that every Monday there's going to be a new episode because then they sort of plan on it and they anticipate it and there it is and they sort of fit fit it into their schedule. So maybe you're like, you know, Monday evenings on the way home from work, you say, well, Chris always has a new episode on Monday morning, so I'll have that and I'll listen to that on my way home from work. So it becomes part of your routine, I guess, is the theory there. So I tried to make a point of uh, being consistent and uh, releasing podcasts every Monday at 12 a.m. I don't know what time zone that 12 a.m. is. I just know that on my podcast hosting service, I schedule it for Monday at 12 a.m. No idea if that's Greenwich Mean Time or California time or Texas time or whatever, but uh, so I've I've been consistent. But the problem with consistency is... As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Hmm. So uh, I've been uh, consistent. And the problem with that is it limits me to one a week. And there are some weeks where I don't do any recordings. And so... Uh, that also sort of uh, conspires toward banking episodes so that when I'm on the road or traveling or 
away from uh, internet access or you know just dealing with other stuff then I can just uh, schedule releases from something I recorded a couple weeks ago a few months ago whatever it is and so I've got them banked um but then there's the question of freshness, you know, maybe the conversation we're talking about something that's happening like today there was an earthquake in Mexico, for example, or these category five hurricanes that are rolling into Florida across the Caribbean. And you hear this three weeks later and it's like, what the fuck are they talking? About? Oh, there was an earthquake. So this is from September. Like, yeah. And maybe that's irksome to you. I don't know. Does it matter how fresh they are? Uh, so there are pros and cons to just releasing them when I record them because they're fresh and, and topical, uh, versus, <laughs> excuse me, banking them and releasing them when, you know, releasing them, dribbling them out over time. I don't know. Uh, I guess my own sort of like squirrel, like bury your nuts for the winter mentality led me to bank a lot of them. Uh, but you know, on the assumption that, Hey, there might be a couple months when I don't record a podcast, but the fact is I keep meeting really interesting people and I don't seem to run out of, um, subjects. So, uh, as long as I'm in English speaking countries, it seems that there's always interesting, there are always interesting people around and, and I seem to, you know, stumble across them pretty easily. So, I don't know, maybe I should just uh, assume a world of plentitude and stop banking things and saving things for later. But anyway, so the poll on Patreon, it has three preferences, three uh, options. One is keep doing it the way you're doing it. Release them every Monday morning. I like the consistency. It doesn't matter if they're a couple months old. Uh, the second option is no, release them as you record them, like Joe Rogan does or other people where it doesn't matter. It comes out Thursday, comes out Sunday, a week goes by, nothing comes out, then two of them come out or three come out in a week and then another week or two go by with nothing. And it doesn't matter to me because I just download them and listen to them whenever I feel like it and the scheduling's a non-issue. And then the third option, which so far is the most popular one on Patreon, is to do a hybrid where I release one a week, but every once in a while I throw in an extra, like this one, for example, with Hunter Motts that we just recorded two days ago, um, and sort of um, mix it mix it up that way. So if you have a strong opinion on that, uh, feel free to email me through the contact page at chrisryanphd.com, also known as tangentiallyspeaking.com, takes you to the same place. Uh, yeah, let me know what you think. I, it seems like a hybrid is probably the way to go. Cause I feel bad. You know, some people, a lot of the people I have on the podcast, they're not professional media people. So like, I remember when I started doing this, um, as a guest, uh, I do a TV show or a radio thing or a podcast or whatever. And, and then I'd be excited like, Ooh, it's going to come out and I'll tell my friends and I'll listen and it'll be interesting and all that. And sometimes it would be like, you know, well, when's it coming out? Like, oh, it's like three weeks from now? Really? Oh, phew, that's a buzzkill, you know? Uh, professionals, people who are used to this stuff, they, they just record it and forget about it. And, you know, they know you're going to release it when you release it. You might not ever release it. Who knows? Um, but for normal people who, you know, get excited about being presented in media and, and uh, sort of, you know, seeing themselves out there like that, 
it's uh yeah it's a it's a bummer because you know we record it and then by the time it comes out the buzz has already worn off for them um so anyway i i feel bad about letting them sit too long for people like that hunter is a professional he doesn't give a shit but we're releasing it uh co-releasing it uh on his podcast which is called mixed mental arts if you haven't uh, listened to that, he's got a lot of really good guests. Uh, he does a lot of the episodes together with Brian Callen, who's a stand-up comic here in L.A. Um, and I guess uh, Hunter does other episodes by himself or just with the guest or whatever. So they've got a really good thing going on over there. It's uh, very much focused on sort of ushering in a new world based on open-minded, critical thinking, uh sort of um, courage to confront any accepted wisdom and think it through and decide whether it works for you or not. Uh, those of you who were annoyed by uh, the uh, browbeating that we did one or two episodes back of Sam Harris will be relieved to know that Sam's name didn't even come up in this episode. So there's no Sam Harris bashing in this episode. I don't think we bashed anyone really. I I think we talked mainly about bodily functions, which seems to happen a lot on this podcast for some reason. Uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoy this episode with Hunter Motts. Let me know what you think about the scheduling issue. It's looking like uh, a hybrid is the way to go because uh, I've got at this point I probably have fifteen episodes banked, and they're great episodes. They're really interesting people and yeah i'm feeling kind of bad to, to sit on all the stuff i want to get it out to you um but i can't release you know 15 episodes in a week that would overwhelm you that would uh overload the circuits as it were um yeah i just recorded uh in the last week i recorded three episodes this one with hunter that you're about to hear one with a guy named jeff dyer who's a, a well-known author I read one of his books years ago called Out of Sheer Rage. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good book about Jeff's struggle to write a book about D.H. Lawrence. So it's sort of a book about failing to write a book. Um, very cleverly structured. Uh, he's also written, I think, a book called Yoga for People Who Don't Like Doing Yoga, something like that. Um, a bunch of books. He's funny. Very smart, very uh, intelligent, very smart and intelligent. Yes, unlike me, unlike Chris. Um, anyway, had a really good chat with him the other day. And then uh, Neil Brennan, who's a stand up comic, uh, writing partner of Dave Chappelle, uh, co writer. I don't know if he's co creator, but he did the Chappelle show. Um, and uh, he did a fantastic special on uh, Netflix called Three Mics, which I've recommended many times on this show, on this air, these airwaves, as it were. Um, yeah, highly recommended. Very smart, touching, well-structured. Anyway, went and hung out with him and uh, had a really good conversation with him. He's the kind of guy, I have no idea why he agreed to do this podcast. We have some mutual friends but Neil sure as hell doesn't need whatever exposure, you know, I'm going to bring him. The guy's uh, 
at the top of his game. He writes for Saturday Night Live and Chris Rock and Aziz Ansari, and you know he's a he's a very well respected figure in the showbiz comedy world. Um, but for some reason, he agreed to to hang out and uh, and to chat, and, and and we had a really good talk. So that's coming soon. Uh, what else can I bring you up to date on? We're hard at work on tangentially reading, and hopefully I will have uh, a landing page where you can pre-order copies of that book within an episode or two. Um, we're sort of, I'm biting my fingernails waiting for an announcement of when that's going to be ready. Should be any day now. Um, really looking forward to that. It's been a community effort. Uh, we've less listeners. Some of you listening to my voice right now have helped with uh, transcripts, with uh, the art, with the layout design. Uh, it's just been fantastic the way people have um, just uh, volunteered their time and expertise for this project. So I'm really looking forward to getting it out. Uh, we're pushing. Uh, we were aiming for October, but I don't know, it's probably going to be November, but I definitely want to get that book out and in people's hands before Christmas because it's a great gift idea. So if you haven't bought Christmas gifts for your loved ones yet, hold on and uh, you'll be able to get them a copy of Tangentially Reading and then they'll understand what it is about podcasts that's fun and interesting, hopefully. So I'm done talking. That was 13 minutes and 40 seconds. That's enough of me. Let's just get into Hunter Mott's. I'm going to play a little tune here. Let's see. I, what was I going to play? Uh, let's play a song called, whew, how do you say this? This is one of those songs, I've, I've mentioned this before, There, there there's music that you know, it's great music, makes you want to move, makes you want to dance. There, you know, there, there's music that the words evoke some sort of memory or it's particularly beautiful poetry, you know, like a Dylan song, Don't Think Twice, beautiful. One of the, that's a great uh, Fuck Off, I'm Leaving song. Anyway, this song, I don't even know what language it's in. It's by Orchestra Baobab, and um, the song is called Muhammadu Bamba. I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what it's about. I don't know what language they're singing in. But the way the song is put together, the instrumentation, the the voice, the production, everything is just so nostalgic uh, to me. It really very strongly evokes a sense of nostalgia. And it's its pace is just so leisurely and the guitar is so precise and so African. It's just, uh, uh, it's one of my favorite pieces of music. So I hope you enjoy it. It's by Orchestra Baobab and the song is called Muhammadu Bamba. Catch you in a few days.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm in my living room with uh, the great Hunter Motts. Great has clearly become diminished as a word, if, uh, <laughs> if I now classify. More importantly, though, we're here with uh, Chris Ryan's mystery tea. I almost called you the late great. And the late great? Well, that may be prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on how this mystery tea goes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hunter wanted some tea, and uh, I had some, some tea in a nondescript container. We're not mm-hmm. sure what it is. It's loose leaf. I already feel amazing. I'll it smelled tell you that pretty much. good, though. Yeah. It smelled spicy and delicious. It is spicy and delicious, and it was in a, a raspberry sorbet uh, pot. Yeah, I yeah. have no idea how it got there. Yeah. No clue. I imagine lots of people have teas in their cupboard that they don't know how they got mystery there. mystery teas. Oh yeah, and it sounds like when it sounds like a euphemism, you know, like oh, there's a mystery, <laughs> mystery tea, tea in his cupboard. In general, if you wanted to drug your friends and family, that uh-huh. is the way to do it. You just slip something in a tea in the tea cabinet in an interesting box. You going Cosby on me here? <laughs> yeah, we're not even a minute into this interview, and hey, you're like, listen, uh, Uncle Chris, date you rape know, techniques. Listen, to my who audience? took who into the back? of his van uncle chris well there's got to be a whom in there somewhere a <laughs> who took, took whom <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's get our relative pronouns correct folks yeah. um so i have you- friends who are grammar nazis i had dinner with them last night and and we determined that they're grammar nazis and i'm sort of a vocabulary nazi really How's yeah. it, how does, it, you know, can those kinds of Nazis work together or is there like sectarian? I think we, I think we have detente. Oh, know? really? Yeah. Yeah. Because like they say things like they'll answer the phone and someone will say, yes, yeah, this Mr. And he'll say, this is I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they do shit like that. Or, or uh, what's the one that gets me? It's like, you know, it's always... Um, uh yeah if fuck i can't remember the example that really annoys me but they do it's one of those things that they do and it's it's a case of it being uh probably i'm, I'm sure they're right because they're very smart and they do crosswords all the time mm-hmm. they're that kind of people um they're right but it, nobody says it that way but see that's to me like ultimately language is defined by the users and well, language shifts but it depends and evolves. on the language. Like Spanish and French, there is an academy, you know, that determines what is correct. And it doesn't matter how many people get it wrong, it's still wrong, you know? But the point is, is that re- that relies on people recognizing the authority of that institution. Right. And, you know, in English, in practice, the Oxford English Dictionary is responsive to word usage. Right. So if we all start using a word like... Uh, okay, that's word. Now, see, now you're into the vocabulary. Yeah. That's my Nazi zone. Yeah. Because I get really annoyed when people use words wrong. People say disinterested, meaning uninterested. That bums me out. I get annoyed by that. Yeah, I can understand that. You know what I mean? Because it means something different. And, you know, and then and you can see it happening. You can see it snowballing if you live long enough. And then it's like, oh, shit, another one, you know, another word that used to mean something specific that now doesn't. But with the grammar stuff, I'm more of a usage, you know, might makes right kind of person. Mm hmm. 
So I don't know. This is well, and this I think is deeply uninteresting. Though. Well, I think the thing that makes it more interesting is when you start looking at it from evolutionary perspective. Here we go. Because here we go. That's why hunters here. Because I think that's to me this is evolution <laughs> in action, and the question is, you know, over time language has been shaped and refined to become more useful to the users, right. and they drop out useless features. So. Uh, the past tenses get well, uh, standardized. They do, and, and the they don't. They do also they, don't. they also complicate them sometimes. Right? They, they, sometimes. Get, they develop even more forms, and so it can go either way. As can evolution. Yeah, as can evolution genetic evolution. Isn't really about simplification, right? It tends no. toward complexity. I think. Well, I think you know there are these sort of Precambrian explosions, and then things get whittled down, and then there's some sort of explosion again. So it's the series. But you're talking about m- multiple. Life forms, as oh, opposed yeah. to the complexity of a single, single life one. form. Right? Yeah. So we could talk about there being many languages and then fewer languages, mm-hmm. and maybe there's that kind of. Well, and even within the language as well, you get all sorts of you know accents and dialects and variations, and then there are forms of like the whole point of the Oxford English Dictionary or any of the attempts to standardize grammar or what happened with the printing press. When the printing press came along, they had to start to standardize spelling. Yeah. Um, and that's basically moving it from a series of localized tools to there being a standard form of communication that uh, makes the flow of information easier. It's no different than standardizing, uh, you know, there used to be a million different types of screws, and then they standardized it down to Phillips head and flaps head, flat head. Um, or you know these standard gauges for mm-hmm. interchangeable parts, and it's that's very much the same thing that happens with language to facilitate communication is that you're regularizing the tools. Right, right. But I think the useful the useful test is really the test is what is practical and what is functional because if I go around and say you know and and I'm really making a point of some obscure grammar point Mm -hmm. then what's the function of that most of the time what I'm doing is I'm I'm lecking I'm trying to show off my intellectual superiority to the group Mm. lecking lecking l-e-k-k-i-n-g so lecking is never that, heard that word. Uh, well, I so I heard it's the the primate behavior of trying to demonstrate status. I got that from Jennifer Jacquet, <laughs> <laughs> who's one of my favorite people of all time. What else did you get from Jennifer Jacquet? Uh, a bit a, a of a, one of those crushes. A croissant, that, no, perhaps? more more of a crush than uh, anything else. A crush Brian on? Brian Callen and I had a huge like it was it was amazing because. So Brian and I had her on the show. We had her on the show about her book and her research. And we started talking about it. And then very quickly, the podcast devolved into Brian and I trying to impress. So you were lecking for her. For her. And then she's like, do you know what you're doing? And she very gently, very politely called us out. And she said, it was very funny because she said, um, actually, when men are around females they find attractive, the length of word they start using gets longer. Um, because you know, and thicker and thicker, <laughs> girthy. That's a girthy word. Girth um, Brooks. Yeah, that's interesting. Lecking, so also known as peacocking. Yep. In uh, the pickup artist community, so I saw a lot of lecking recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ever been to Burning Man? I haven't, but that seems like an amazing place to peacock. There's a lot of peacocking going yeah. on. Yeah, like sort of. Maxi peacocking with all these art cars and mm-hmm. 
outfits people are wearing and there's just a lot of uh, a lot of display behavior well and even being at burning man is a display yeah. right because yeah. you get to say oh can't next week i'm going to burning man right <laughs> or oh man yeah i've got this amazing sunburn on my face because yeah. i just came back from wow, burning man i got playa dust up my butt it, crack because i was at burning man yeah um so it is it's a great form of lecking mm. um which but, I guess I just did by even mentioning it. Yeah, you did a little this, bit. I mean, podcasts are lecking in it's, a sense, dude. Right? Of course, listen to us. We're so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a conundrum. Well, it depends also that, but that's where you sort of have to dig down in your own deep dark psychology and be like, why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Why am I having this conversation? <laughs> why? Why did I why? get out of bed today? Yeah. Why am I even here? Yeah, you can't can't ask that question too deeply. You can? No, you you run into trouble. Man. What, where do you you just fall so far down your own navel that you get lost? You become a nihilist. Oh Jesus, no, Lebowski! <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> How long did it take us to get to Lebowski? Eight minutes. And yeah, 50 that sounds seconds. about right. I blame the tea, to be honest. Like this is clearly special tea. Special tea tea. Special tea tea. Yeah. Um, so how was uh, how was the road? The road was long and winding. Uh, mm -hmm. It was great. Good. It, it was really good. Yeah, I uh, went up through. I went up the coast of California. Did podcasts in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. uh, two of them there. One with a sex researcher. Oh, great! Um, or not? She's not a researcher. She's a sex educator. Amy Baldwin is her name. Okay. Uh, I'm going to release that one soon. Uh, well, soon. I don't know when I'll release this one. Are we doing my podcast or your podcast? We by can the way? do either. You want to whatever. Co -release let's co-release. Yeah, high five, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've already said welcome to my podcast. Oh, <laughs> welcome to Mixed Mental Arts. <laughs> um, Super mix this week. Yeah, Even exactly. More mixed than normally. So we had an eight-minute intro. Uh, to the Mixed Metal Arts podcast. Like, that was all the, the pre-roll. That was pre-roll. And now we're yeah, that's in right. both podcasts exactly. at the same time. We're so unconventional. Jesus, dude. It's amazing. Uh, so, yeah. Amy Baldwin. So, Amy Baldwin, she's she's really cool. She and her mother own uh, a sex toy shop in Santa Cruz. And they do workshops. And um, so, I met with her... We originally scheduled it for for the previous evening, but then she couldn't make it because she and her mother were doing a blowjob seminar together, teaching young ladies and, and I imagine young men. young men who were interested uh, in blowjob technique. Anyway, <laughs> so had a great, great time with her. Uh, I did meet her that evening. We went out for a drink when she got back, but she was too tired to do the podcast. And uh, it was it was very interesting because she's hot, right? Right. So we went up for a drink, and it's like, oh, yeah. this chick's hot. This is nice. And she's yeah. totally, like, unashamed about sex and uninhibited and all that. And uh, at the end of the evening, she's like, oh, I'm really tired. I'm going to go home and go to bed. But I have a gift for you. And she hands me a bottle of lube. Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this van trip isn't going so great. <laughs> But it was this like me and my lube are gonna go back to my van. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make a night of it. It's like, hey, I'm going to bed, but here's some lube. Here's some lube. Yeah, have have some fun. fun. 
Uh, but it's this, uh, it's this lube she says is the best. It's called Uber Lube. Uber Lube. Yeah. Can you also Uber request Alice. it via your phone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'll bring it by. Some guy will bring it by in his Prius. But so, um, you know, I was actually just on the way over here. I was having a conversation with somebody who had just finished reading your book. Hitchhiker? Uh, no. Sex at Dawn. Oh, I thought you... The person you were speaking with was, oh, a, hitchhiker. was a hitchhiker. Yeah. yeah. I actually met a random hitchhiker and they were reading Sex at Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, Sex at Dawn is now everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> uh, but they were saying that they thought that your book should be required reading for all of humanity. Well, that would do wonders for, for me. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? Talk yeah. about a bestseller. <laughs> like, Seven and a half billion copies in print. Right. <laughs> that, J.K. Rowling. Yeah, hey, North Korea, we're going to drop them from oh airplanes. Oh, my God. Send Actually, a rocket over. You want to talk about how uh, you would bring down North Korea? Just dropping a bunch of copies at Sex at Dawn. Think that would do it? I think that would do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it keeps selling. People keep talking about it. I yep. keep getting emails from people saying it's changed their lives. It's, I mean, it's very uh, inhibiting to the idea I'm going to ever write a second book. Well, that's kind of the challenge is that, uh, yeah, I mean, why write a second book? Yeah, why ruin a good thing? Well, but it also, you it's know. It's like my cousin. He, he yeah. had his first baseball game in high school last week. Uh-huh. Right? He's. He's a great kid. He's really, yeah. he's cool. He's about 14 years old. He's like 6'3", maybe 210 pounds. He's a big, big guy. Big guy. First at-bat. Yeah. Grand slam. First at-bat <laughs> in high school on the baseball team is a grand yeah. slam. And everyone's like, dude, quit. Quit. Just quit. Wow. Like, that's it. Wow. It's not going to get better. You nope. know? <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so, uh, so that's the, nice. That was nice to hear. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, I think that's the interesting thing too, though, is is that like Sex and Dawn is such a good book for um, sort of waking people up to the fact that there is this huge disconnect between what our culture teaches us and what our biology wants us to do, mm. because obviously sex is the most primal. Um, mm. It's up there the with most primal. Eating, shitting, eating, shitting, sleeping. Yeah. The big four. The big four. <laughs> <laughs> Eating, shitting, sleeping, sex. Fucking. But yeah, if, if you think about the big four, I mean, how eating is, I mean, there's obviously huge problems with the way that we eat, but it's not as out of touch with... Uh, I don't know. I think there are arguments yeah. to be made there. Yeah. More than sex, you think? Well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, ultimately, I, I think... You know, this isn't something you can measure very accurately, but you think about eating. We don't know where our food comes from. Mm -hmm. We don't know the conditions in which it's produced. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're totally alienated from the food process, most of us. Uh, A lot of the food now is grown in soil that's so depleted that there's very little nutritional content. So we're Mm -hmm. eating these big red tomatoes that have no flavor and very little nutrition. And right. so we're actually starved even as we're growing obese with calories. We're starved right. nutritionally. So, you know, and we're destroying the planet. All the topsoils run off. We're using all these pesticides. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the whole sort of conundrum of the way food is produced and consumed, I would say it's, at yeah, I mean... You could argue that we're even more disconnected and it's even more detrimental to our 
well-being than the sexual disconnect. Because the thing is, when people are fucking, when, people, when, when someone finds a good partner and they have a good thing, it might not last forever, whatever. Right. They, you know, they have expectations. But in the moment, fucking's great. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, they're in the moment, if they have a good sex life, they're celebrating their animality together. Mm-hmm. Right? And even if it only lasts for, you know, 20 minutes or 20 years or whatever it is, but in that moment, I feel like they're returning to this primal state um, if it's good, right? And with food, when do we return to our primal state, really? You know, I've never killed anything and eaten no. it. I've never, you know, I don't have that connection with it. I was talking with uh, my buddy Kyle recently who uh, did a... Well, I have two friends who, who've killed boars, uh, wild pigs on in Hawaii. On a stick hunt? Uh, one was uh, Kyle with a bow. Yep. And the other was uh, my buddy Simon Rex, both of whom have been on my podcast. Um, and Simon, it was a thing where they had dogs that would chase the, the pig mm-hmm. down and hold it. And then you go up and you stab it with a big right. bowie knife. And he did that. He sent me a picture this morning, actually, of himself, like, with the pig the gutted boar over his shoulders and blood dripping all over him and stuff so i mean even a novelty experience like that i haven't had um it's something i want to do in the next couple of years because i do feel some responsibility just to acknowledge the reality of stuff but i mean we're so disconnected yeah it's like death you know unless you are a healthcare worker who works with people who die you right you almost never see it right it's weird so death, that should be another, the big That's five. big five. So we got eating, sleeping, shitting, fucking, and dying. Yeah, I would say that is the big five. That's pretty much all you need yeah. right there. Yeah. Well, but I think that if you, also the big five, like if you walk someone through the big five... That's when you, like at the end of that process, after going through the big five, there is no doubt that your culture is massively out of touch with your biology. Mm. That's when it really becomes clear to you. Because like even, and you know, sort of birth is kind of the other one. Yeah. And because, you know, I, yeah. I recently had a conversation with, so a friend of Katie O'Brien, who I wrote The Straight A Conspiracy with, she's, uh, her due date is literally tomorrow. Hmm. Um, and I had a conversation with her and then Jenny Aguilar, who's in our community. And, you know, they were just sort of talking about the realities of childbirth. And because uh, I've just sort of realized that I've actually never held a baby. Um, you've never, never held, held a, a baby? baby? Yeah. So you've never run for office? Never run for office. Uh, I've practiced a lot on, you know, sort of Cabbage Patch dolls, but right. never worked up to the real article um because you're afraid you'll drop it yeah it's like a huge amount of responsibility and i just also too much time playing basketball yeah that is the problem i have the wrong intuitions i just want to dribble the baby Uh, (laughs) but it didn't bounce wait a minute oh this one must be a muggle (laughs) um so yeah so uh but i mean you know that that's potentially like this is sort of like it starts to become like the seven sacraments of Chris Ryanism. Oh, that's, I forgot about Chris Ryanism. Ryanism we yeah. were going to start a cult last time you were here. Oh, well, I got we? some news for you. While you were on the road, we started a cult. Did you start it? Yeah, we started it. In my name? Yeah, pretty much. Really? You're, you're one of the central figures in this cult. Oh, one of. So yeah. it's not my cult anymore. Now I'm some fucking well, would you really second rate. You want a monotheistic cult or a polytheistic cult? 
Um, well, we'll have to. I'll have to look at the details. We'll have to look at the fine print. I think you want a polytheistic cult. They tend to have more of a sex positive attitude. I think than monotheistic <laughs> religions. I don't know that That's in true. Chris Ryanism. If Chris Ryanism is a monotheistic religion, I don't know that there's a lot of sex going on. But I, who's talking about religions? I'm talking about cult. cult. cult I'm cult. just talking about Charles Manson without the killing. You know. <laughs> Well, we are in L.A., and we are in the part of L.A. where you would really, really, like, do some Charles Manson shit. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that was dramatic. Yeah. Sneezing. That's the seventh sacrament. <laughs> the, the little orgasm or the little yeah, death. Or the little, the petit mort. Yeah. Um, have you got um, another one coming? I might. Jesus. I think I do. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. I, I get these uh, sneezing fits. I'll, I'll sneeze, like, five or six times. Uh, why do you think that is? Fuck. Is that a thetan coming out? Were you just getting a thetan out? I don't know what that is. A thetan? Uh, a thetan? Yeah, I don't a know thetan. what a thetan is. So a thetan is from Scientology. Oh, uh, oh right. They're right, yeah. the, uh, the alien ghosts that possessed your body. Do they tend to congregate in the nasal passages? Um... I think that the uh, they tend to congregate in your wallet, and that's why you have to like <laughs> empty out the wallet. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe so you started a cult. So I started a cult. Yeah. Um, essentially, because good you, for you. Yeah, it's great. No, but you know, the last time uh, I was here, we were talking about uh, the monomyth, right? The right. hero's journey, and. Um, you know, just sort of realizing that... How come you didn't bless me, by the way? I don't... That was really rude. Really? I but, sneezed twice and you didn't bless me yeah, even that's once. that's because you're also a god. As a god, <laughs> you can bless yourself. Do gods sneeze? <laughs> is that what a hurricane is? Um, oh, god sneezed on Florida. Oh, my God. Well, you know, it reminds me of that of the end of Ghostbusters when he's... When, when uh, Venkman says... Ray, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, the cult. So, yeah, so yeah. We, were, we were talking about... The monomyth. The monomyth. And that um, essentially we, you know, have reached this place where we're about... We, one of the possibilities is we complete the hero's journey. Right. And we return to sort of living in, in line with the rhythms of our biology, uh, but yeah. we cool, keep all the cool shit. Um, yeah. And, you know, I had this conversation with these two artists in the UK, Fantic and Young. Oh, you sent me their stuff, the mm -hmm. shoes with the teeth and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And they had this great slogan, primeval yet contemporary, uh, which is, I think, a great encapsulation of what we're talking about. You know... I coined the term paleo-modern. Well, that's also great. And my mom's got t-shirts and hoodies. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Go, mom. And they're on special. They're on sale right now. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because well, people weren't buying them, so we uh, we lowered the price to clear them out of the garage. Well, I'm going to buy one. Where yeah. do I find them? ChrisRyanPhD.com. Jesus. Go to the store. Yeah. And you'll see all the fascinating array of t-shirts for sale there. Wow. All made by... Sure, design t-shirts in wow. Thailand. Yeah, they're soft yet strong. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get some of those. And yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna well, I'll, explicitly. I'll give you some. I got a Jesus, I got no, a pile really? of them right over there. I don't think there are any paleo modern ones, wow. but you can feel that soft. Well, color. I'm gonna plug the shit out of that as well. For don't you, you have? Uh, did I ever give you a civilized to death shirt with no. the sad chimp? 
Oh, okay. Well, when we finish here, there's swag. Me. There's some there. Yeah. Wow. Potential swag, depending on if we can find your size. Oh, damn. Well, I don't know that they come in that size. <laughs> you, you have a special size. <laughs> I have a special purpose. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you know, I think part of the you know we've talked about this process of detribalizing. Yeah. And I think so much of the challenge for people in terms of detribalizing is that. In practice, it often means going into exile because you leave whatever tribe you have and then you have no community. And then you have to sort of sort through that all on your own, which makes it particularly hard. Yeah, yeah. If you're lucky, you find the community of people who are Mm detribalized, which happen to be the most interesting people in the world, in my opinion. Uh, But it's not easy to find them because they don't all hang out in the same place. And so that is, is exactly, nature. and that is the goal. The yeah. goal is to basically create a community of people who have gone through detribalization. Right. And um, to then start to evolve deliberately and continue to be evolving a better and better culture. Um, mm. And so that's really the goal of mixed mental arts. Mm. Um, and, you know, you're one of the major deities within that am now, i a mixed mental artist you if you want to be we'd be honored to have you <laughs> well, do i get like a gi or something you can have any of the swag you want we can have a whole you know we can get real hunter gatherer about this shit and you know have uh, reciprocal altruism you, you know, know. Be cool oh yeah that's a great idea instead of t-shirts or in addition to t-shirts we should sell like civilized to death loincloths. Oh, dude, I am in. <laughs> we can gather around the fire. And listen, I'd actually like to go on a boar hunt. Yeah. 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 Well, Kyle says he can hook me up with these guys in Hawaii. And the other thing about the, the boar hunting in Hawaii is that you know, he does this thing called Surfing for Change or Surf for Change. Mm-hmm. It's a YouTube channel that he does. He's a big wave surfer. He goes all around the world, oh, awesome. but he does these videos about social things that are happening in different areas, mm-hmm. you know, not just the surf. Right. Um, and so in Hawaii, and I encourage everybody who's listening to this, if you want to check it out, go to his, I think it's uh, KyleTierman.surf, something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Look him up on, on YouTube. He's got a channel. Okay. Anyway, um, so in Hawaii, the deal is that they, they these pigs are feral. They were brought by Captain Cook or some, mm-hmm. you know, Westerner. Wonderful human being like that. Yeah, and they've gone totally crazy, and they have disrupted lots of native uh, species, and they dig up the dirt so much, and then it rains, and the dirt runs down, and it kills the coral. Right. So it's not only fucking up the land, it's fucking up the sea. Yep. So... You're doing them a favor by killing some of these pigs. They're, right. You know, it's a big problem. So it's not like, you know, going to Africa and killing a zebra or something. Right. Or I mean, shouldn't say a lion. You know, zebras right. aren't. Zebras are interesting. You ever seen a zebra? Like not in person, but I'm going to South you Africa You ever held soon. a baby zebra? No, yeah. but I would hold all the baby. I feel like <laughs> after the Cabbage Patch doll, the zebra <laughs> is, the, is the next step up. Well, zebras are fascinating because they look like horses. You would think they're very much like horses, but they're impossible. To domesticate. To domesticate. Yep. Yeah. There are some animals that just won't do it. Yeah. It's interesting. And some people. You ever think about why did they... Ship. Why did they go to all the trouble of shipping all those Africans mm-hmm. to the New World as slaves? Why didn't they just enslave the Indians? 
Uh, well, one of the explanations that I heard from Charles C. Mann. 1491. Yep. Good book. In 1493. And in 1493, he makes the case that it's all was about malaria. Yeah. Well, and other infectious diseases, diseases as yeah, well. Yeah. That the African. And I actually found, uh, I was Googling around and I found there's, a, there's some research that um, essentially the same thing happened around the oases in the Arabian Peninsula because there was so much malaria there mm. and so sub-Saharan African slaves started to predominate there because they also had malarial resistance. Wow, yeah. So it, it may be that, you know, these same <clears throat> environments, you know, selected for these same cultural outcomes. Yeah, um, yeah. Where were we? Zebras. They won't Zebras. be domesticated. Oh, but and why did they bring lots of Africans all the way across? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure the disease is probably the major component. But the other thing that I've read repeatedly in accounts over the years is that um, the Native Americans just refused. Yeah. You know, they would rather die than, yep. than be enslaved. And also, I guess fear of death is an interesting thing, right? If mm -hmm. your fear of death is relatively low then the list of things you refuse to do grows. Right. You ever read, there's a short story by Herman Melville, it's very interesting, called Bartleby the Scrivener? Uh, I know of it, but I've never read it. It's quite interesting, because it's, I'd like to read it again, it's been a long time since I read it, but what I remember is the main character just basically refuses to participate. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about detribalization and stuff. I remember the recurring line is he just says, I prefer not to. <laughs> he just keeps saying, I prefer not to yeah. when he's told to do this or that. And so he just sort of separates himself. So I wonder what, <clears throat> you know, we often say, what if, if there's... If there's nothing you're willing to die for, then your life isn't worth the living. You know, there are all those expressions. Are there things you would die for? Um, Ideas or people or what? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that obviously there are problems with our culture, but it is um, it is it is this massive human collaboration that has happened over so long, and I think that there uh, there are times when you know humanity can go in very bad directions or very you know much more positive directions. And I think that if it comes down to it and your life has the ability to tip the balance one way or the other, mm -hmm. that it's, you know, you're always, you know, your life is obviously your greatest resource, right? It's the most valuable thing you have. And so the question is, how can you best use that resource for the benefit of the tribe? Mm. And I think that really, it just becomes, comes down to so that. So give, give me an example, though. How, what does that mean in concrete terms? Um, <clears throat> so, for example, if you... I think part of the... Yeah, I, I, I think part of the challenge is that, A, you don't know what you would do until you're really put in that position. Right. Like, it's easy to, like, sit here and be <clears> like... <throat> You know, if I had the chance to, you know, right. shoot Hitler or whatever and die right. in the process, I would. Um, but I, uh, uh, there are a lot of things that I'm willing to fight for, but I have a hard time understanding a situation in which you dying strengthens that fight. Yeah. Like, if you're no longer, or like, what is the situation in which... You know, I mean, there are certain military situations where potentially, yeah, you have to sacrifice your life right. to save others. A suicide mission or jump on a grenade, Hand grenade or, something. or something like that. I have a buddy who just um, 
just gave up one of his kidneys to a, a childhood friend mm-hmm. that he hadn't seen in 15 years. Yep. Well, that was, that, I mean, that's, you know, you're not, you're not dying, but you're certainly taking cutting away into your, own your life. spare, yeah. you know? Yeah. I have a friend who did that as well, and he did it for more or less a total stranger. Huh. Um, she was some sort of friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, and they happened to be a match. Yeah. It was one of those things where, um, you know, essentially they, you know, had some friend. They went, they haplotyped everybody, and then based on that, it was like he was a match, and he volunteered one of his kidneys, which is obviously a huge, huge thing. Now, that's the question is, if you'd given up one of your kidneys for Amy, how would things have gone? Do you think she would have just handed you lube, or...? Would there be... Yeah. That's a good question. I'm going to have to get back in touch with Amy. <laughs> and say, can I... I got a know, new offer for you. <laughs> throw a spare kidney. One slightly used kidney your Thanks way. Thanks for the lube. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if I can, you know, switch the calculus on this. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, I, I find that whole thing of, like, dying for your country or dying for this or that, I find that really problematic because the older I get, the less comfortable I am feeling that I know what's right or what's wrong, what's good or what's bad, you know? Well, I think it also gets to something that you've talked about a lot, which is that a lot of these sort of uh, super organisms or super entities have a life of their own, have incentives of their own, and the nation state creates myths that serve it, uh, you know, chews up individuals as and when it needs. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the myth that we've all been sold is the myth that World War II was the good war. Yeah. And, but, you know, for example, like in 2004, I just graduated from college and I actually went to a recruiting office because um, I was like, you know, I had literally no, I had no idea what to do. And so I went and I talked and I talked to, I think, somebody from the Air Force or whatever or the Army. And, you know, I was sort of interested in doing linguistics. And then, you know, I talked to the guy and it became very clear that there was no guarantee that I would be sent to Monterey to study Mm -hmm. languages. And I was like, boom. So I may be signing up for what I think is one thing. And then you're going to use me wherever you think I'll be most necessary. Right. Which may be as cannon fodder. Right. So... I think that's the big problem is that, I mean, people forget that the nation state is not old. It's only a few hundred years old. Um, It really, I mean, you know, Germany was cobbled together 200 years ago. Italy was cobbled together during the Risorgimento, which is even less. Um, You know, French is actually Parisian that was just imposed on the country. You know, Spanish is the same thing. Um, So these, these myths are very modern myths. Yeah. And I also don't think that most of these myths are going to survive for much longer anyway. I think the nation state yeah, is... Yeah, feels that way, doesn't yeah. it? Going back to city-states or regional Well, I think tribes. you're going to see the emergence of... I think, you know, uh, I had this conversation a few years ago with a friend of mine, Marie O'Reilly, and she works in sort of development and conflict resolution and all of that. And, uh, you know, the way she describes it is human-first where people have a series of concentric circles of identity, but the real thing is to reach a place where people's core identity is human. Right. 
And then you have other affiliations. Well, and like, this gets back to the detribalization exactly. thing, right? So as people drop away from these antiquated tribal identities, hopefully mm-hmm. <clears throat> we find a, a more universal identity. So it's funny. So we start talking about my trip. We talked about one Amy. Mm-hmm. And then we veered off into lube. And yeah. Who knows what else. So uh, the other person I interviewed in Santa, Mon- in Santa Cruz was uh, Jim Fadiman. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the microdosing oh, okay. kind of guru of microdosing LSD. Yep. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. Really cool guy. And then I went up to uh, Mendocino mm-hmm. and interviewed Tim Scully, who was um, an LSD cook in the seven, 60s and 70s who made millions of hits of LSD and was trying to change the world. With He was featured in a recent film called The Sunshine Makers. Wow. Yeah, really interesting cat. Got busted eventually, um, did... I think three years in prison. He was sentenced to ten, but he did three. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So that was that was really interesting. And so, what? How yeah. did he think he was going to change the world by like detribalizing Turning people? people on? You yeah. know, see the truth. Get yep. you know, break your out of your mind forged manacles, as yep. William Blake said. Um, yeah. So that was very interesting. You know, to to talk to someone who was. Uh, you know, obviously a genius, like a really, really smart guy, mm-hmm. definitely on the autism spectrum somewhere. Uh, and he himself said that. And, uh, you know, and, and yet whose life was motivated, like he gave his life. He knew yeah. he was going to get arrested and he didn't give a shit. He just kept pumping out LSD because he thought it was going to help humanity. Well, I think it, and this then gets down to like, what do you mean by giving your life? Because if you yeah. mean giving your life in terms of devoting yourself and all of your right, energies to right, a cause, right. I'm doing that. Or dying. But I don't, yeah. I don't, not in the sense of like, I, you know, I'm not looking to take a bullet. I was thinking about this this morning. There, there was a thing on the news about, you know, I don't remember, some, some congressman insulted, uh, Trump's chief of staff, who's a general, right, general somebody, and the the people talking about it were all incensed in there. Like, what? This is a man who's given his fifty years in service to this country, and blah, 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 blah. and I thought it's it's so funny. Like, people in the military get paid, right? Yeah. Like they get a really good pension, they get health care, they get housing, they get, you know, in what sense are they giving anything to this nation? You know, well, some of them are in the line of fire. That's for sure. Okay, but um, they're getting paid. I well, mean, it's a job. It is. It is a job. I think the, the thing that bothers me more about that is is that there has been such a narrow definition of what patriotism is. Yeah, and that you know, patriotism. Like it's the the thing that I always think is funny is is that there's a reason why the Second Amendment is second. It's because it's your backup plan. You know, your first plan is if you're doing what you should be doing with speech and free assembly and all of that, then you don't have to get to the stage where you're using guns. Right. You should be able to resolve all of your differences by talking them out. And then, you know, but this what's ended up happening is, is that there's become this very narrow definition of patriotism, where patriotism is marked by, are you in uniform or are you not? Right. And if you're in uniform, then you're patriot and you're serving your country. And if you're not... 
then you're you're not really and you're just sort of relying on them to save your ass again and again from from yeah. what Afghanistan yeah exactly <laughs> i mean and that's and that's the stupid thing about yeah. the whole argument around terrorism is the fact that the whole point um and all credit for this goes to George Friedman, who's at Stratfor, the strategic analysis, and he's got a couple of great books in the next hundred years and the next decade. Mm. But the whole point he makes in there is, is that the nature of terrorists is that they are weak and they are unable to pose an existential threat. So at no point could Al-Qaeda capture and hold Milwaukee. They didn't have the forces or the ability to do that. They didn't even have really their own weapons. They had to take our own planes and turn them into weapons. And so the only thing that a, that a power that is that weak can do is to rely on emotion and to create so much fear and so much panic that the giant stumbles. Mm. And that's what they did. They, you know, they were the gnat, the gadfly that made us so emotional that we were drawn into a war in Afghanistan and a war in Iraq that, you know, financially crippled us, killed lots of people, destroyed all the goodwill that we had. I mean, you think about where the United States was post-Cold War. You know, yeah. we've never had more soft power than we did after the Cold War. Yeah. Um, maybe after World War II as well. But, um, and then, you know, and all the financial resources and then, you know, piss that all away. Well, but we didn't piss it away. We transferred it to arms merchants, mm -hmm. right? And so I think there's a huge sort of momentum toward keeping wars running because it, you know, it feeds that beast. And if you if the beast isn't getting enough, it starts to turn on itself. Yeah, the military industrial complex yeah, that exactly. Eisenhower warned about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I look at that and I think, yeah, I don't. I'm, certainly, it was a mistake. On you know, from my perspective, it was a huge mistake. But I, I think it's to me, it's more complicated than a mistake. It's, it's a, uh, it's almost predictable. You know, it's well, almost like they're looking. There are powers that are always looking for a reason to throw a bunch of money into more wars, you know. And it doesn't, and I think the other thing, too, is just it's the echo chamber of the military-industrial complex. Right. Where if you're constantly surrounded by the idea that there are all these threats and the narrative that there are people who are out to get us then yeah. that becomes all of your thinking. It's just an echo chamber. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are, that's, that's you, you ultimately a lot of this comes down to waking people enough up that they're willing to question the narratives that they're being fed. And I think that part of what the internet is going to enable and make possible, and already has made possible to a large extent, is that you're being exposed to so many counter-narratives and so many other ways of thinking mm. um, that essentially no one narrative uh, becomes necessarily the dominant narrative. So if you think about the 1950s, in the 1950s, you're all hearing the dangers of communism, the danger of communism, which is why someone like McCarthy can get so out of control. Right. And then ultimately, it takes a small number of people in the media like Edward R. Murrow who are willing to provide the counter narratives. Right. Um, but in, in when allowed to by their corporate overlords. Of course. Yeah. But nowadays, yeah. you know, you can go and you can listen to lots of and lots of other narratives if you want to. Yeah. And it's interesting because you can also do, you know, go the other direction, which the Internet and, you know, media explosion is also allowing, which is just go into your hole and just listen to people who agree with you. But 
So what do you think? I just wrote a piece for um, the introduction to this podcast book that we're putting together with some excerpts from the first couple of uh, couple hundred episodes. And, you know, I, I compared podcasting to the advent of the printing press, mm-hmm. you know, which you mentioned earlier. And, you know, maybe it's hyperbole, who knows, but it seems to me that the ultimate impact of podcasting could be comparable to the printing press. So this is funny because uh, yesterday mm-hmm. I did a podcast with Brian and Thaddeus Russell. Uh-huh. And did he fly down for it? He was in town. He was in town. He was in town. He flew down on his broomstick. Nice. Um, but he uh, he literally used the Reformation analogy. Mm. And I, for the last six to eight months, or however long, or a year or something, um, was, have been saying that we need a scientific reformation. Mm. So I think that is absolutely where we are. And the analogy is the same, because there were people like Jan Hus and... Um, a lots and lots of other people who challenged the Catholic Church. But they were all silenced because, you know, it was easy to just execute them or, you know, uh, John Wycliffe was another one. Mm. And their, so their movements never took off. The advantage that, the, that Martin Luther had was that he was nearby a town that right. had a printing press. Pamphlets. And yeah. within a few years, they'd flooded Europe with three million pamphlets. Three million? Three really? million. No shit. And so it's the same thing, is that you and I get to have these conversations. So for so long in the 1950s, you know, academia, there was this unholy alliance between academia and the media of who was legitimate and whose voice counted. And now, and this is literally the conversation that I had with Thaddeus and Brian, is that, you know, Thaddeus was like, there are all these podcasts. And, you know, if you look at them, the top ones are all like NPR, blah, blah, blah. And they're just doing what radio has done and they're boring. And then you get to this other chunk of podcasts, which is Joe Rogan, uh, you know, The Fighter and the Kid, uh, Thaddeus, you mm. know, you, Mixed Mental Arts, you know, tangentially speaking, all of this stuff. And that is where the intellectual reformation is coming from. Mm. And the pieces are already there. And really, we just need to collect, connect the dots, organize help people detribalize, provide them with a space where they can do that, and then provide such a coherent, clear alternative that it becomes clear side-by-side test. There's what the universities are producing in terms of an education, in terms of students, in terms of preparation for the world, in terms of their view of the world. And um, you know the analogy that I heard from uh, Jenny Aguilar, who I mentioned earlier, apparently in uh, birthing, there's, there's some book, I can't remember the name of the book, but the author talks about how there's the medical myth and then the research reality. Mm. And that the two do not match up with each other, and people naively do. And it's a perfect description for what's going on. You call it the standard narrative. Yeah. And, um, you know, in education, it's the same thing. There's the educational myth, and then there's the research reality. And the problem is that the, these myths are not a good fit for reality. And because those myths are not a good fit for reality, they create all these problems for people in their lives. And the only reason why we buy into them is because of intuitions of authority where, you know, we've been told that the doctors know what they're talking about and that they're the authority and they're the experts. And now you have the ability where we can put these ideas out there, we can expose them to people, and people can 
choose to go where they want. They can listen to whoever they want. They can form their own conclusion. So, okay, now you seem to be operating under the assumption, and, and I think I, sh I share this assumption, but let's examine it. The assumption is that this multiplicity of options, multiplicity of voices, opinions, arguments, and so on, uh, is going to lead to superior outcome. Yeah. Whereas there is an argument to be made, I think, that it leads to just further fractious tribalization. You get more Alex Joneses. You get Bill O'Reilly. You get you know, you get people who are unchecked by any sort of community mm -hmm. uh, voice. So I think that you know this is. I mean, Joe Rogan has said that you know the internet is in its adolescence. And I think that's a perfect analogy for where it is. You know, this is sort of the Precambrian explosion. There's like right. all sorts of shit going on. So is it going to be meet the new boss same as the old boss? In other words, is the adulthood of the Internet going to be corporate control once no. again? No? How are we going to? Well, I think I don't know about the corporate control part. Here's the part that I... Here, there's, a, there's a few things that I feel pretty good about. So in the, the, the big problem, I think, in, is, you know, the big problem of the Catholic Church is that it's about human authority, right? And that the Pope says, therefore, the Pope goes, and this sort of infallible individual. Mm. And then the Protestants are sort of say, we're going to read this stuff and we're going to decide for ourselves. And then in the same way with science... There is, there are popes, and there are these people, and they speak ex cathedra, and they are the authorities, and what we say goes. And I think that essentially, you know, there's been a massive rebellion against experts in 2016, um, mostly against essentially economists. Um, but there are all these other people like uh, uh, Brett of the School Sucks po podcast, School Sucks Project. Mm. So he's very much the same thing as the straight-A conspiracy, just all the ways in which school is not set up for human beings. It's not mm. set up for human biology right. and doesn't support them. So all these... Yeah, isn't that funny? All this research now coming out just in the last week showing that extended sitting is the greatest predictor of premature death. Mm -hmm. And what is school? Sit down! Yep. Kids, sit down, sit down. Also, by the way, what is this, <clears throat> what is humanity's superpower? Like, what separates us out from all the other apes? Social play. intelligence yeah. and play. And then what are you trying to punish and shut down? Right. Socialization and play. Exactly. So you've literally, it's an environment that is designed to make children dumber. <laughs> it's uh, Compliant. Yeah, compliant. Yeah. And that's... And that's the, that, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the thing is that's what served the industrial age. That's true. Was people who would follow yeah. orders. Yeah. I don't know if I've told you this story. And I was talking one time with this guy. I think he's, I think he was Australian. Um, I was on the road somewhere and I said something about, ah, oh, people are just stupid like sheep, you know? And he said, eh, I grew up on a sheep farm, actually. Sheep aren't stupid. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what happens is. When a sheep shows you some sign of intelligence by getting his nose under the fence or figuring out how to jump over, you know, this barrier or whatever, you kill him. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, the other ones will follow him. Yep. So sheep aren't dumb. They're not dumber than any other animal. But because of the needs of social control, we eliminate the ones that show any Smart sign ones, of intelligence. Yeah. So it's what you say. It's, yep. it's like schooling. It's... Um, yeah, it's the opposite of cultivating intelligence. Yep. It's the opposite of what 
it actually claims to be. Yeah, of course. It's so hard, though, man, because you get these teachers who are, I mean, I taught. Did I ever tell Mm -hmm. you I taught high school for, oh, God, it was terrible. I I did, it was the, (laughs) so what happened was I saw this movie called uh, Pay It Forward, Mm -hmm. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I was reminded of all these great teachers I had when I was mm-hmm. a kid who, you know, I moved a lot. I was always mm-hmm. the new kid. And, and so there were these teachers who recognized that I was in a tough spot. I didn't know anyone. And they would go out of their way to make me comfortable. And, hey, come by after class if you want to talk. And they just really good people, you right. know, and recognized my little drama. And, and um, I have a lot of gratitude toward them. And so I saw that movie and... I was thinking about, you know, how lucky I was that those people were kind to me and all that. And then I saw an ad for uh, a local private school in Barcelona, um, mm-hmm. for mainly for foreigners and yep. rich Spanish people. Um, and they were looking for a, a history teacher. Mm-hmm. And this was like August. And right. the school started like two weeks later. Right. And so I went, I was like, eh, fuck it, I could do that. Why not? I was working on my dissertation. My my schedule was pretty flexible. And I went in, and I figured they wouldn't hire me anyway, because I didn't have any degree in history. I had a degree in in English, right? Right. But they were like, you're in a PhD program? You're a native English speaker? You know, like, fuck yeah, you're the the guy. And they were desperate, right? So they hired me. Um, And I was supposed to teach uh, American history from the Civil War Till now, mm-hmm. so and my I had two classes and they were both tenth uh, graders I think tenth or eleventh graders they were sixteen seventeen, and the first week of school nine eleven happened, so it was like the second class was after nine eleven right, so I was just like oh, okay listen we're forget about the civil war we're going to talk about American foreign policy we're going to talk about oil. You know, the Treaty of Yalta, you know, the whole Middle East thing, because you guys will remember this the rest of your lives. Trust me. So we're going to talk about why this happened, the context of that. Right. And um, and so we did for we probably did that for a month or two. And the thing is, uh, within a week or two, I realized that this had been a giant mistake on Mm -hmm. my part, that these kids didn't want to fucking listen to me, you know, right. Of the 25 kids in the class, there were probably five to 10 who were into it. They were right. smart. They were mature. They were interested. The rest were just like, you know, goof, not goofball idiots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th- not that they were stupid, but they were young primates yeah. and all they wanted to do was flirt and yep. joke and run around. And, and it got to the point where I just said, like, look, if you don't want to be here, please don't come. Yeah. Like, I won't tell anyone. I don't yeah. give a shit. Just don't come here. Right. Oh, we have to come here. If they see us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, can't you just like sit back there? You know, they're just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. So it was very frustrating because if I could have just hung out with them. Right. And not been some sort of enforcer, right? It would have been great, but and I didn't enforce, so it just collapsed into chaos. But the, see, I think that's the key thing is, is that I don't think again, it's not it's not that there are bad teachers that the teacher people there are bad teachers, but 
teachers who do a bad job. Yeah. But there aren't, I don't think that teachers are bad people in the sense that there no, it's, are... it's a hopeless situation. And there's the demands of the institution. Yeah. And the, the institution doesn't, like, it just all comes down to it's not designed for humans as they are. Well, that's the thing. If you're a good person, as a lot of teachers are, you find yourself in a position where you're you're acting against the interests of the people you're trying to help. Yeah. And against your own inclinations. Right. Because, I mean, so much of it is becomes, there becomes this curriculum. And, you know, the number of times that you're working with a student and you're like, oh, like I was working with this, this kid the other day and she had, you know, terrible experience at school. Right. And so now I'm helping her through homeschool just to sort of like give mm -hmm. her a reboot so she can get on track so she can get back into school and have a better thing. Right. And this girl could not be more curious. Right. She has a million questions. That's great. She's asking about, you know, Christianity and Catholicism and like why we have this and why we have that. And then sitting in front of us is the curriculum. And there's like a whole bunch of like little milestones and assignments that yeah. have to be jumped through. Yeah. And I, you know, it just becomes that, that tension between like, what's good for your education is that we just keep talking and we just explore every question you have. Right. And we would do that for however long, a few sort of months, a Socratic, three months, Socratic six months, system. exactly. Yeah. And then at the end of those six months, you would know whatever you know. And then, you know, we could probably still then work through all that year's worth of material in six months. No problem. Satisfy the milestones. But the point is, is that that's not the way the schedule works. Yeah. And that's not what the parents expect because the parents have expectate, cultural expectations of school is about like completing assignments every day. So you end up having this tension between what you want to do, what the kid wants to do, what serves the kid in the long run, and then the dictates of the institution of yeah. like, you have to fulfill the milestones. I, I was really lucky uh, in the sense that as soon as when I, because I moved a lot in high school, I didn't do very well. Mm -hmm. You know, I got my SAT scores were high, but my grades weren't. And um, so I ended up going to, uh, you know, if I, you know, sort of the normal track would have been Ivy League and you right. know, all that. Um, but because my grades sucked and I didn't give a shit because I was just dealing with social stuff. Um, I ended up going to this school, Hobart College in upstate New York, which was. I didn't know at the time, but it was sort of unique because in the 60s, it was a hotbed of radical mm -hmm. student agitation. Somebody mm -hmm. bombed the ROTC building and, you know, whatever. So in the 60s, it was like, whoa, crazy, you know, kind of a Kent State situation. Yep. Um, so a lot of the people who were teaching there... Mm -hmm had been radicals in the yep. 60s and they're like oh fuck yeah hobart you know yeah. and hobart when i first got there they had this um grading system which was abc slash there were no d's mm. or f's and so if you got a slash what that meant was it just you just never took that course which is great it was great it was so as to encourage you to try new things and yep. not worry about it if it doesn't work out, it's not going to affect your GPA. Right. And you could have, I think, freshman year, you could have two slashes, and then it was maybe one per year after that or something. I don't remember. Um, so it was this sort of radical, like very cool, hip mm -hmm. um, faculty. 
Right. But the problem is that it's a private college, so it's very expensive. Right. So the student body was a bunch of fucking right wing George Bush, mm. you know, Ronald Reagan supporting golf club types. Mm-hmm. So I got there and I was like very aligned with the faculty and not with the students. And so the faculty were like, oh, this, this guy's like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up getting essentially like a, you know, tutorial education. I became right. friends with professors and they just like, you know, hey, let's go to New York for the weekend. I'll, you know, we'll see some films yeah. and go to museums. And we'd walk around, get high. And they'd tell me, my friend Eric especially would be like, yeah, so this is, you know, the, 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 the famous thing where the women were locked in the building and they had jumped out of the windows when the building caught on fire the oh the shirt, the, the the fire the um it was, it was the, in the village somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. the it shirt the, something yeah it was, a, it was a textile plant yeah and it was sort of the beginning of labor rights yep. movement and yep. all. so i got this private education yep. from these people you know and andrew um harvey who was the youngest person to ever teach at oxford was one of my friends and you know just like fantastic but who can who gets that you know but see the the interesting thing if we go cuz you know i think probably especially because of you you know i sort of i you know went through my own education then i read all the neuroscience and the psych and then you know i've sort of realized all the problems with that and then increasingly i've been thinking about how hunter gatherers educate mm. and it is it is that you are in awe of someone you see that they have something that you want. You spend time around them. You start dressing and acting like them. You, you know, they start to show you things. And it is all done socially and through relationships. Right. And there's no reason why we can't have that. Well, can we, though? Isn't it a question of scale, like everything else? But I think the interesting thing is, and this is, so I've been having these conversations recently as well, is let's think about old people and young people. Yeah. Right? And old people have skills, but very often what they don't have is a sense of purpose, right? They've retired, they are a little bit lost, and there's a real danger of old people sort of atrophying and, you know, just sort of giving up. Yeah. Young people are badly in need of knowledge because they don't have a lot of that yet. They don't have a lot of that wisdom and that insight. And, you know, so the point is, is that if you take an old person and a young person, you put them together, you solve both person, people's problems and you create yeah. a win-win. There's a cool place in Holland That's where they exactly do that. That's exactly right. You know about that place, yep. yeah. So um, young people get free housing in the old folks' home mm-hmm. and they spend a couple hours a week or whatever it is hanging out and, and it's good. It's a win-win. I would counter, though, by saying that, that something... There's an essential difference between the hunter-gatherer world and the world that we live in that makes this model very difficult, which is that hunter-gatherer kids are growing up in the same world that their older people grew up in. So if I teach you how to use a blowgun and shoot monkeys, it's the same thing I learned, whereas old people... This, you know, skills they have aren't relevant to this world. Well, some of them are. Yeah. Some of them are. Not all of them, but some of them, you know, I mean, the, the, the emotional and the relationship skills sure. are probably pretty sure. timeless. And knowledge and how people act and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, knowledge is important. But when you said skills, that sort of jumped out at me because I've just been writing about this, how, how 
hunter-gatherers are at ease in their world because that's the world that created them. Yeah. That's the world. It's like a cactus in the desert. That's exactly where it's supposed to be. That's why it's shaped like a cactus, mm-hmm. right? Whereas we're living, every generation of us is living in a world that has never existed before. Yep. And, um, and even within the it's decade. fucking crazy. Well, and no, even yeah, within the decade. Even, yeah. I mean, you know, my... Did you read this, this sorry to interrupt you, oh, this uh, Atlantic article about uh, the generation, the first generation that's grown up with smartphones? Oh, yeah, and how they... They're how so it's, fucked up. Yeah, how it's fucked them. Like yeah. on every measure. Yeah. They're socially inept, they're suicidal, they're mm-hmm. depressed, they're unhealthy. It's just like... Yep. That's progress. Well, but I, I think that's the, um, that is where the, I think there's a couple of things. That's where the primeval yet contemporary thing comes in. Yeah. It may be that, you know. Paleo-modern, bitches. Paleo-modern. And that's, and it's, it's, that's really what it's got to be about. And then I think the other thing, too, is with the skills transfer, I think part of it is, is that it may be much more two-way, where also the young people are teaching the old people how to, you know, handle and manage technology. Right. Um, get their email. Well, I mean, it's the classic thing of, like, Junior helps Grandma learn how to check her AOL. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the little man didn't come up yet. Why is that? Um, And then I think the other thing, too, is is that in an environment that is constantly changing, you need a constantly evolving culture and a constantly evolving set of mental tools. Yeah. And... uh, you know, I mean, it really is about embracing constant learning. Um, and God, wouldn't it be nice to to live in a world where you could just learn and have it all figured out by forty, and then just coast the rest of the way? Would it though? <laughs> well, you know, I think again, we're breaking it down into. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm kidding to some extent, but but breaking it down into skills versus knowledge. Yeah. I kind of feel like, how old are you? 36. Yeah. So I didn't feel it at 36, but I, somewhere in my mid-40s, I think, I started to feel like, oh, I see how this works. Mm-hmm. You know, like on a lot of different levels, mm-hmm. dealing with women, dealing with money, dealing with loss. You know, there's just sort of an acceptance and a, and an, a sense of arrival. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh yeah so there there is a feeling as i i'm 55 now and there's a feeling as i get older that it's like yeah it's funny how it's set up like you finally learn to dance just when the party's almost over yep you know it it's just and it so it sometimes makes me think yeah it would be nice if i'd like learn if i'd figured this shit out in my 20s because I can, but it's funny because it's an eternal conundrum. I can remember Andrew Harvey, this guy I mentioned earlier. This guy's the youngest person to ever be a don at Oxford, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was W. H. Auden's lover when Auden died. People don't know Auden. He was the poet laureate of England. Yeah, one I think. of the greatest poets of all time, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, great guy. I mean, I never met Auden, obviously, but brilliant and. Uh, yeah, and Andrew was 21. He was a full Oxford at dawn. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's from the family, the Harvey family of discovering the circulation of the blood. Indira oh, Gandhi Jesus. was his godmother. So he's from this amazing wow. family. Yeah. And I can remember 
hanging out with him and talking about the future and whatever. And I can remember him saying, oh, if I'd if I'd figured out things as well as you have at your age, God knows where I'd be now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah right, Yeah, you're the youngest dog in Oxford, dude. <laughs> yeah, um, right. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's that's also the interesting thing. And I hadn't really thought about it until now. But there, although we live in this environment of constant change because of human biology and just because of, you know, there, there are certain things that are going to be more or less constant. Well, human nature. Yeah. You know, human nature hasn't changed, I think, uh, you know, for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I think we're agitated Mm -hmm. and we're we're living in under much more stress Mm -hmm. and so that changes the um, sort of chemical reactions that happen just like you know if you increase the pressure on different chemicals they'll react to one another differently than they Mm -hmm. would at sea sea level under normal Mm -hmm. atmospheric pressure Um, but yeah i think if you remove those external constraints i think human nature you know, we we want the same things. Yeah. You know, we want to be loved. We want to have pleasure. We want mm-hmm. to be uh, healthy, and you know, we want a certain amount of movement, a certain amount of rest. You get back to the big five there. Big six, dude. What was the sixth one? I think childbirth was the. Was probably, yeah, but that only that, applies that's a to some of, women. Or you make that just sort of like a a subcodicil or, or maybe fucking. Like, or birth death. I, I, birth death, or you, know, you make it there. Yeah, I would put it there, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Codicil. Nice <laughs> word. <laughs> well, now that I know that you're a word Nazi. Are you Nazi, lecking? There are no yeah, women around I'm here. I'm lecking man. for don't, you, don't dude. Don't lick for me. Yeah, you're, why shouldn't I lek for Uncle Crest? You're lecking up the wrong tree That, there, by buddy. the way, sounds like an amazing, uh, you know, riff on like, instead of don't cry for me, Argentina, don't lek for Uncle Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the big five. I like that. Yeah, maybe I'll reorganize Civilized to Death around the Big Five. I'm constantly reshuffling, and I've reshuffled it so many times now, I I don't know even where I am. I think the Big Five is really good, because the Big Five is really where it becomes clear that civilization is what's killing you. Right, exactly. It is this culture that is not paleo-modern, that is fucking you up. Yeah. So the big five is a really primal way to do it. Yeah, they're, they're touchstones. They're, and yep. they're things everyone understands, although I don't know writing an entire chapter about shitting. Oh, I actually, that's the one I'm most excited for. Yeah. Well, I have, you know, I did uh, in the original proposal for this book yep. that I turned in five years ago or something, there is a chapter on shitting. And I've done some research and I met a woman who wrote a book about shitting, too. I forget where it is, but yeah, I mean, you the, know, the, the squatty the potty. Yeah, I've got one. Yeah, I've got a well, squatty potty too. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, that's the thing. That's why I am a big fan of the idea of coming out of the water closet. I think that the, <laughs> the, the more of us that come out of the water closet and admit that we use the squatty potty, uh, yeah. the more it's going to be like, oh man, my culture has literally been fucking me up the ass. <laughs> For quite some time now, and I That's am good. so much That's better good. off instead of sitting while I'm shitting. Steal that? Yeah, you should. Yeah, the uh, you know, in, in my apartment in Barcelona, I have an Asian toilet, which is the dream. Yeah, like I don't even want the Western toilet with the add-on. It's not the same. It's Having not the your same. feet up is not the same as squatting. No, it's a whole other thing. Yeah. You just the hips settle in much yeah. more. I did a podcast the other day with a supermodel. 
mm. like legit supermodel. Uh, you ever see that the Super Bowl, the famous Super Bowl ad for Carl's Jr. with the really hot woman? Like eating a burger and it's like yeah, dripping, dripping on her down chin. Of, yeah, yeah, that's her. Yeah, okay, she, good for her. Yeah, um, and we spent most of the time talking about shitting and farting. That is what I'm talking about. It's like I, I do it all the time because I agree with you. I mean, yeah. it's like bring that stuff out, talk about, you know, animality. I, yeah, I think, and this gets back to the big five, and it gets back to these points we were making. I think. Most of the problems people have psychologically and physically uh, are due to their loss of relationship with their animality. 100%. Yeah. And it's a, it's the denial that, that we are animals. Right. And uh, I still read this all the time. Like, you know, um, we evolve from ape-like creatures. Yeah. No, fuck you. We are <laughs> ape-like like creatures. creatures. Yeah. Or we are just apes. We're apes. We're very yeah. ape-like. Yeah. We're the socially intelligent like ape. The, the, just the language of that. Of course. That we evolved from, from apes. Yeah. To what? Well, but it is this, that it's always like the thing that drives me nuts is, is that it's this idea of the break in history. Yeah. That's what drives me nuts. Even with the <clears> Enlightenment, <throat> always there's this narrative that sounds like the narrative of every religion yeah. where it's like there were the Dark Ages. Right. And so we just make the, right. the era before us shittier to seem as bad as possible. And then there's the enlightenment. Hobbes, there it yeah. is. And then you have the enlightenment and it's like, oh, and then everything was so much better. And why do we have the enlightenment? Well, because we'd figured out the secret sauce and the secret right. sauce was reason, yeah. you know. And the chosen ones. And the chosen who ones. Who were us. The great white gods. Isn't that great how that worked out? Yeah. It's us. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think 100%. I think so much of how you're going to detribalize people and start to create a tribe called human and with this human first identity is the big five because it becomes so primal and it's such a good test because there are going to be people who are willing to talk about shit, right? And there will be people who think that's beneath them and refuse to, you, and they will reveal yeah. their psychology because they're so uncomfortable with their own bodily functions. Exactly, like homophobes who are afraid to talk about homosexuality. Yeah, like hey, there, there's the giveaway. And it's also you the, hate fags. It's the biggest giveaway of authoritarianism as well, because the whole point is that so much of what that sort of sense of I'm separate from you relies on it relies on this awe. And nothing destroys awe like shit. Mm. Shit is the thing. Like if you see, if we, if you know, whoever people are in awe of, if you see that person shitting on the toilet, that awe. Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, gone. Does he use a normal toilet, do you think? Or does he have like a large capacity? (laughs) He has a super duper toilet. Um, Actually, by the way, there's a a book by Mary Roach. Mary Roach writes all these sort of Oh, I've had her on this podcast. Oh, have you? She's awesome. I'd love to get her on Mixed Mental Arts. Yeah. yeah, she, she writes gulp in and, gulp exactly, and, and they're all one word titles. Gulp, stiff, grunt, right. bonk, bonk. Yeah, yeah, that's the sex one where she has sex. She and her husband have sex in a cat scanner or something. Oh, whoa! Yeah, that that is a really you know that is a husband who is up for anything. Good for him. <laughs> Good for Mary. Yeah. Um, but she talks in gulp about megacolons. Oh. Yeah, and apparently Elvis had a mega colon. Oh, really? Yeah. And he died on the toilet. Toilet, and she thinks that's why he died on the toilet, or some people do, including Elvis's doctor, because what happens is that when you're on the toilet and you're forcing it, mm. you do the Valsalva maneuver, 
Mm -hmm. um, and because of the way that you're holding your breath, you actually make your heart stop for a second. Oh. And sometimes they don't restart. And so this is actually a big thing is that a lot of people die on the toilet. And there's even... Oh, I thought it was the pressure like, you know, popped an aorta or something. No, no, no. Oh. It's something to do with cardiac function. Oh, wow. Um, and on, a, on an Asian toilet, you never push. You exactly. You just, like, you just let, it, it flow. let it fall. Yeah. Let it flow. Let it flow. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. That's so beautiful. Um, Did you know there's a sh their turd chart? Oh, yeah, the, the Bristol, Bristol stool scale. The Bristol st Big fan of the Bristol stool scale. <laughs> I always categorize my shits after I take them. Do you? Yeah, just to, to brush up those skills because, you know, you don't want those Bristol stool skills to atrophy. You've got to, like, keep them sharp. Yeah, yeah. How quickly can you eyeball a four versus a five? Well, let's see. The, the five is smooth like a snake and the four is lumpy with cracks in it. But they're both acceptable. Yeah. The yeah. four and five. The, yeah. Um, I had a, a... Or is it a three and a four? I forget. It's in the middle of the scale. All I know I is... I just looked at it today, actually. Really? Yeah. A friend sent it to me. <laughs> it came up at dinner last night and I was laughing. Like, why? Why Bristol? And she's like... I was like, you should make posters for bathrooms. And yeah. Like, no, they exist. And she sent me one today. That's amazing. Yeah. But, so um, there's like the pellets. The one is the pellet, like yeah, hard that's bad. pellets, yep. you know, like, like rabbit shit. Like yep. you're super constipated. And yep. two is like larger, but still hurts. Yeah. Well, and it's if you can see the bumps on it, I think. Well, no, that's okay, because three is is kind of like a, a log that's got bumps on it okay. and cracks, and that's cool. Yep. And then four is smooth, Yep. still log-like, and that's yep. cool. And then you're getting into, diarrhea. like, mushy. Yeah. There's a, there's a stage before six is diarrhea, but five is, like, and somewhat seven mushy. seven is just fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> seven is get out of Mexico. <laughs> exactly. Um... But uh, the Aztec two-step. Yeah, and there should really be a zero, and the zero is like, can't shit. Yeah, which is like uh, apparently Elvis's mother used to have to manually disimpact him. Oh, that was that was literally manually disimpact him, and that's why he was so close to his mother. Elvis's mother? mother. Yeah, this oh. is what Mary Roach says oh. in Gulf. At least this is these are you know it's all like rumors. Jesus. None of it's and confirmed. There, so there he is, like the sexiest, coolest dude in the world, and his, and his mother, mother had to stick her finger up his ass. Yeah. Oh man. man. So yeah. So I'm talking with this fashion model the other day, and her, mm -hmm. her name's Charlotte McKinney. And you know, I yeah, I don't know if I do it on purpose or what, but um, you know, I got it because I lived with these models in Spain, and we we're talking mm -hmm. about you know how models because they have so much attention to their physicality, they get really uptight about it, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a it's a dangerous toxic Profession, environment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we talked, I, I asked her if she farted in front of men and stuff. And, you know, I, I was like, for me, a woman's con connection with her animality is, mm -hmm. is like the number one thing I'm looking for mm -hmm. with women, you know, and, and the way I've expressed it is like a woman who's comfortable taking a dump behind a bush. Yeah. That's a girl for me. Right. A woman is like, no, I need to go to a cafe. Yeah, I need yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. yeah we're not going to last very long because yep. like... That's that doesn't work for me. Well, if you're not comfortable with some part of your animality, you're probably not comfortable with other parts. That's of it. it. It's a package deal. Yeah. yeah. 
So if you're not comfortable with, you know, admitting that you shit, then you're not going to sleep well. You probably aren't having orgasms. You know, there's just a million things that are going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah it's, it's true. I mean, talking with you, it becomes clear. And I've always known this, but it's it's sort of, uh, thank you, Hunter. You're, you're clarifying the purpose of my existence. <laughs> that's good. But I, like, really, that's yeah. sort of the central theme in my yeah. life is like, let's admit we're animals. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, Isaiah Gooley, who I mentioned a thousand times on our last podcast, mm. and I'm going to limit myself to once on this one. But, you know, he, 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 he was very clear. The whole part of where the whole Chris Ryanism thing evolved from oh, was right. him basically saying that, you know, what we were doing with mixed mental arts had really you had been doing for a long time, which is basically saying it's OK to be human. Right. And part of the it's okay to be human is it's okay to be an animal. Right. And, and it's a different kind of animal than you've been told. Right. That's a part of it, you know, because people are told that we're this horrible, ferocious, yep. murderous beast. And so that's part of the thing. It's okay to be an animal, but you're not the kind of animal that they've been telling you you yeah. are, which is why it's okay. Right. You know, it's a, it's a double message there. I just saw this again the other day. This drives me crazy, but I guess it's the nature of the beast. But, um, you know, is the thing, Richard Rangham, the Harvard Oh, yeah, yeah, guy, the he, primatologist yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote Catching Fire. And yep. He's been around a long time. He's done a lot of really good work. But there was this BBC thing, and it was about the primate origins of human murderousness. Yeah. And it was this thing with the chimps and the chimps go off and patrol their zone and they, you know, they're trying to catch and murder and ambush another. And there's no context. There's no discussion of how many times has this actually been seen Mm -hmm. and how many, you know, chimp troops has this never been seen in decades of observation? You know, how and why is there no discussion of bonobos? It's Mm -hmm. just like. I don't understand how this shit keeps getting presented as science. It's well, unbelievable. But that's, that's, I mean, this sort of gets down to a much larger point about storytelling. And, mm. uh, you know, you talked about, uh, like, even the seal and the shark attack. Right. Um, and that, you know, it's disaster porn. That's what most of television is right. going for. They're going right. for the most emotionally immediate but not only television right i mean look at about evolutionary theory i know we've talked about that it's they they're calling it science whether it's presented on tv or in books or magazines they're calling it science but it's totally a contextual yep totally um cherry picked uh, and they're only picking the bloody cherries. Well, yeah. Richard and, Dawkins goes nuts on that. Well, he does, and that's why he gets so much attention. Yeah, because he's, you know, uh, he basically makes Jaws. That's that's what he's doing. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the most dramatic, the most violent, the most extreme, the most, you know, all of that. And it's not it's not the full picture. And what you need is you ultimately need. I mean, this is also the same thing with. Um, you know, I had this, we had this, uh, this guy, Adam Hansen on the podcast the other day, who is an innovation expert. Like, mm. that's what he does. He studies innovation. And, you know, he, um, he was talking about how, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think are important. One, if you ask like four or five-year-olds how many of you are creative, they all put their hands up. By the time you get to middle school and high school, there's maybe one or two kids mm. that have put their hands up. So, mm. A, that is trained out of people, people's natural inclinations to be creative and to explore and to do all of that. Crazy. 
And then the other thing, too, is he came up with this because he wrote a book called How to Outsmart Your Instincts. Is creativity one of the big six? If so, it's going to be big seven now. Oh, Jesus. Because play. Play. I think play is... All primates play. I'm I'm taking notes here. Yep, good. So we're now up to seven? Well, uh, let's see. So we have play, sleep, shitting, fucking, uh, fuck, eat, eat. Birth, death. Right. We're going to put those together. And... You got play. So, so that's one, it? two, three, four, five, six. I feel like we're missing one. Yeah. Uh, yeah it'll come up. Was e- eating's already in there? E- yeah, eats yeah, yeah, yeah. in there. Um, Sleep, fuck, shit. Uh, well, we can... Our listeners are are shouting out. Yeah, exactly. I know what it is. <laughs> I know what it is. You can call us now. Yeah, call 1-800. So anyway, Sex I interrupted you. So, uh, so anyway, so he wrote this book called, right. yeah, Outsmart Your Instincts. Right. Which is all just about understanding our cognitive biases so you can then work around them. Right. And, you know, he, um, basically the combination of the sort of the availability heuristic and uh, the Dunbar number leads to what he calls dumb barring, um, which is where, you know, you see ISIS and they're so emotionally relevant and extreme. And if you have no other experienced Arabs or Muslims, then what happens is that, you know, you fill in and create the story about Arabs and Muslims that they're all basically like ISIS. Right. And it's the same thing with, uh, you know, what is happens with a lot of this you know, sort of disaster porn science or what I call weird science because it is that culture of uh, the weirds, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Yeah. um, Where they just tell such a small piece of the story and then people, because they hear no other of, none of the other parts of the story, they fill in and they think that's the whole story. Well, and you can't blame them because they're being told it's the whole story, right? I mean, in terms of evolutionary theory, the focus on competition mm-hmm. you know ruthless eater and eaten. tooth and claw right that is being presented as the story yep darwin himself wouldn't agree with that nope but nor would david sloan wilson he's not here to defend himself yeah look, sloan mm. wilson is but you know they're ridiculed those guys yep. have a real hard time getting hurt at all but see that's where this podcast community becomes so interesting mm. because now you have a community of people who are essentially seekers who are many of them already are detribalized in some ways yeah um and they are you know know the problems of the standard narratives of the standard culture and you can build a coherent alternative and so much of this comes down to numbers when you have you know whatever this i mean you know thaddeus used i think the appropriate word here you have this ecosystem and when this ecosystem of say 30 million people or however many it is gets really comfortable with all these ideas. They know about David Sloan Wilson. They know about Joe Henrik. They know about Sex at Dawn. They know about John Haidt. They know about all of these different pieces. They know that that's what Darwin never never believed himself. Then at that point, there's now, uh, instead of it just being that there's, you know, it's like tiny, those tiny little dissenting voices within academia and these big public voices, there's now two giants. And now we have to resolve this dispute between these two giants. Right. And how is that dispute going to be resolved? It's going to be resolved based on 
uh, well, this is where it gets interesting. Is it resolved based on the social power of the two groups, or is it resolved on who has the most compelling argument in terms Which of the evidence? Which gets back to the, the first thing we talked about mm-hmm. with the grammar Nazis. Yep. Is it right because more people believe it, or is it right because right. it's right? Yep. Yeah. I, to, just so people, we're not leaving people behind here. David Sloan Wilson is uh, a contemporary scientist, evolutionary scientist, who is one of uh, a bunch of scientists. He's probably, he and E.O. Wilson are the most mm-hmm. uh, well-known arguing for what they call multi-level selection, which is a more nuanced and complex vision of how evolution proceeds than the, the selfish gene or the, you know, the, the um, uh, sort of cartoonish vision of, you know, everybody fighting and the survival yep. of the fittest and all that. And there, there are two big parts. One, Dawkins' narrative is gene-centric. So it's myopically focused on genes at the expense of all else. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the Wilsons uh, are talking about it happening at every level. So it's genes, it's culture, it's tribes, it's groups. And then it's this very interesting thing of culture gene coevolution, right. um, where, you know, you have now obviously, and it becomes like when you look at the evidence, it's pretty obvious that the evidence is on the side of multi-level selection. Of course. And the, the, of course, but it's, it's so interesting that ideas become popular because they satisfy the powers that be. Yep. And also because they're easy, easy. It's like junk food. It's just easy yep. to eat it, so it becomes popular. It's not nutritious. And idea, like it, this idea of the survival of the fittest is like, oh, I get that. Yep. Right, that makes sense. Plus, it you know feeds into capitalism and a narrative. That... Well, and a very specific form of capitalism. I mean, right. it's you know Jeff Skilling's favorite book was the Selfish Gene, hmm. and then he runs his company Enron on that basis. Right, he does the real world experiment. He does the real-world experiment of this selfishness-only narrative. Like an Ayn Rand economic model. And what actually happens? The company fails because what ends up happening is is that everybody's out for themselves. Right. And there's no trust and there's no cooperation. And so Enron doesn't function as a corporation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you have Pixar. Pixar has this great healthy culture where, you know, people uh, really sort of work together. They are learning each other's skills. They're collectively trying to solve problems. And it continues to lay golden eggs, Mm. right? That's how the goose is supposed to work. That's how a tribe is supposed to work. Right. But the, so yeah, part of it is the gene-centric thing. And then part of it is the selfishness thing. And, you know, David Sloan Wilson and E.O. Wilson came up with this very simple phrase, which is, Selfish individuals outcompete altruistic individuals. Altruistic groups outcompete selfish groups. So, and there's actually there's experiments they've done with this. Have you ever heard of the water striders, the rapey water striders? Uh, the bugs. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So there apparently there are these two variants of water striders. There's a rapey version, and then a nice guy take you out to dinner version. And if you have a group that is mixed of rapey water striders and nice guy water striders the rapey water striders do much better you know they in terms of reproducing, reproducing yeah. and producing more individuals but if you have a group that is all rapey water striders and then all nice guy water striders the group with the nice guy water striders is much more fertile and productive mm. because the females in the rapey group are so traumatized right and it seems like the carrying capacity for rapey is about one percent 
That's sort of the level that it can support. And it seems to be about the same level as psychopaths. That psychopaths may be a strategy that works at a certain low level in the population, but doesn't work when you have the entire tribe doing that. See, theoretically, I, I see some weak points in that. Mm -hmm. First of all, 1% doesn't mean that it's working at 1%. It might just mean that it's... Uh, naturally occurring anomaly that at happens 1%. at 1% yeah. that never gets totally wiped out because it happens Could through, be, yeah. through random genetic selection or fetal conditions right. or whatever. Um, the other, the, the issue I have with the, their sort of thesis that selfish individuals outcompete altruistic individuals is that if you look at the context of hunter-gatherers, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And this is a big, a big issue that's raised by Dawkins and Steven Pinker and mm -hmm. other neo-Hobbesian theorists who, you know, they look at the sort of game theory model of hunter-gatherer groups and they say, well, they couldn't be egalitarian because you'd have a selfish infiltrator who would come in and he would take over and he'd refuse to work and he'd want right. to fuck all the women and he, and like they'd be defenseless against him. Right. But in fact, that's not how hunter-gatherer groups no. work. When you have some an asshole like that, they ridicule him first. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work, someone will sit him down and talk to him and like make it clear that this is an issue. If that doesn't work, he gets an arrow in the back. Yeah. Because have you ever read Christopher Bohm? Uh, no, we, we last time I was here, we talked it's about very, it. I have one of his books around here, um, something in the forest, e e equality in the forest or something like that. He's um, an anthropologist who's done, as far as I know, he's done the most work looking at how hunter-gatherer groups, the dynamics by which they maintain an egalitarian yep. social dynamic. Well, this is very much David Sloan Wilson's work, too. Like, uh. So Darwin's Cathedral all begins with hunter-gatherers and hunter-gatherer behavior right. and about how egalitarian they are and when they make a kill, the first thing they, they do share. is you share it, they right. drag it into the middle of the circle right. so everybody can see it, they right. feed themselves last, they give right. themselves... They, they share arrows so nobody even knows which, which, whose yeah. arrow killed it. So he's very much yeah. on the same lines So how, in there. what sense does he believe that selfish individuals outcompete altruistic then? Well, the point is, is that... Or is if, he not talking about humans? Well, he's talking about that as potentially as a... He's saying the place where selfishness can play out and I think the other thing too is it becomes about large-scale societies. So if you're in, if you're beyond the Dunbar number, then it becomes very hard potentially to spot and track the defectors. Whereas within uh, the Dunbar number and within a hunter-gatherer group, the point is, is that we're very good at spotting, yeah. oh, fucking right. Ung over there right. is not doing his part. Ung over? Yeah. So when I was on... Uh, when I was on Rogan, we were talking about this, and he he like named the hunter gatherer the the, the Ung, uh, and that you know every time we go out for guavas, Ung never goes, and then he eats all the fucking guavas. Yeah. And then he said he literally basically you know on a fairly intuitive level I think talked through what happens to Ung, right? Yeah. And is like well first thing that happens is that you know we call Ung out on his shit, and then we like fucking take him out <laughs> yeah Ung, Ung has a hiking accident we, exactly we take him for a walk and he never comes yeah. back well Bohm is makes an interesting point um you know you're talking about culture gene coevolution. there's also uh that sort of coevolution happens in humans as hunter-gatherers he makes the point that um we we have been armed 
mm -hmm. for a very long time. And so it doesn't matter who's bigger. It yep. doesn't matter who, you know, who boasts more and who, you know, everyone's capable of killing you at 30 yards, right? Yep. Uh, and they're very, very good at it. So that sort of, I think it, you know, uh, undermines this argument of the selfish infiltrator. Yep. How? How is one asshole going to take over a group of, you know, 50 armed people? Well, and also the other problem, too, is, you know, and this is this is Henrik. Um, like he has this chart that I just think is maybe the most important chart in human history because it's literally <laughs> More like than the Bristol turd scale. Okay. It's second, second, it's second after the, this is number two after the number two chart. Um, but, uh, it's, he, you know, he gives an, uh, they give an intelligence test to, uh, a chimp an orangutan and a human toddler mm. and you know on this intelligence test on causality on spatial intelligence and on quantities we are either as smart or dumber than the chimp there's only one area in which we're off the chart smarter and that's social intelligence mm. and we are the hyper socially intelligent ape and so if you yeah. have some interloper coming in right Everyone we're we're really quick at spotting who and is not pulling it away and gossiping yeah. and all of yeah. that so i and you know we all that's something that we can all observe in our own lives yeah. like if you're with a group of people and it's clear that you know, you so-and-so hasn't done any of the cooking. They haven't done any of the cleaning. People you notice. know, people notice really yeah. quickly. Yeah. By the way, I, I have to thank you. I think it was the last time you were here, you mentioned, and maybe you even sent, sent it to me or something, but there was an essay. <laughs> I can't remember the author, but it was about how can you know what the blind spots are in your, your own culture? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was like he said, you know, we look back at earlier generations and we think, how could they have possibly have thought mm -hmm. that women were dumber than men and right. that blacks were inferior and right. whatever. And the, the homosexuality was a disease. And so are there ways I think you recommended this to me. Are there ways to look at our own culture and determine what our blind spots are and what mistakes we're making. Does that ring a bell for you? It sounds like the sort of thing I would send, but I don't remember sending it. <laughs> so I wonder who it was. It was and I'm kind of tempted to claim credit for it. Well, but I also know that because of this But you is, should read it. So I should. If you claim credit, then I won't send it to you. You, know, well, you have to so cover then, your tracks. Well, but, and, but the other problem, too, is, is that, you know, we are... I mean, this is, this is why I have real hope for the Internet, right? We're doing this podcast to literally hundreds of millions of people listen to this and you know and that's not even counting china that's not even, <laughs> i mean we're huge in china dude um but you know there are a lot of uh of our fellow hyper socially intelligent apes out there and you know they'll figure out real fast if you're full of shit and they will call uh, you out on it so so don't lie so that's don't the lie point uncle chris i think i think that you know now those what's happening is, is this technology and enables those within the Dunbar number hunter-gatherer dynamics right. where we're able to sort of police each other and call out defectors uh, and call out miscreants at a yeah. much higher scale. So I'm going to go yeah. ahead and say I didn't send you, you didn't. that article well, and I'd like to read it. I'll send it to you because it, it was really, it's very interesting. It's no more than 10 pages long. Um, but yeah, he basically says, okay, we, we look back, we see how mistaken they were. We think, mm -hmm. how, how could that have happened? And yet... 
and it feels like we're not making those fundamental errors, but of course we know we are. Yeah. So how can we, what are some techniques that we can use to figure out where we're totally off base, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things he says, and there are three or four of the techniques, the only one that comes to mind right now is look at things that cannot be said. Ooh. Look at taboos. Yep. Because the, the cloud, the sort of shadow of taboo mm -hmm. hides mm -hmm. this fucked up thinking. Right. And so getting back to shitting and, you know, fucking and like the big seven. talk about the things that people don't talk about yep. in polite company. And that's where you're going to find room for a lot of improvement and a lot of, uh, yep. you know, increasing your intelligence. Well, I think if I think you that's, won't get invited back to the dinner party necessarily. Yeah, but, but you'll get invited to a better dinner party, uh, a dinner party with Uncle Chris. Hey, Do you ever see the Bunuel film uh, where everyone's sitting around a table at a big dinner party? Do you know Bunuel? You yeah, ever yeah, seen yeah, film? yeah. I, I think it, I forget which film this is, but they're all sitting around a table and it's a fancy party, yeah, all yeah, upper yeah. class, the general and the bishop and all these. And as the camera pans out, you realize there's no food on the table. They're all sitting there talking and drinking. And, um, and the camera pans back and they're all sitting on toilets. <laughs> they're, they're all just shitting together. Yeah. And then it cuts to a guy like gets up and says, excuse me, I'll be right back. And he leaves and, and he, he goes, goes to this little room bathroom. and he eats by That's himself, so funny. all ashamed in the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. I and mean, Bunuel is great about that. Like yeah. flipping like, oh, yeah. why is this a social activity yeah. and this is shameful? Yeah. Um, so you'll get invited to the shitting uh, dinner <laughs> sounds party. Amazing. <laughs> sounds amazing. But in practice, you know, oh, your shitting dinner party, there's no toilets. It's just like the Asian squat toilet, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so is, we'll hold it outside. I think it's better. Which is amazing. Yeah. It's even better. And that's how you're going to, you know, find out who are the girls that you're interested in. <laughs> because any, any, you just clear up what the dinner party's about. And if, you know, the, if chicks yeah. don't show up and they're not down for right. shitting in public. Well, also like, you want to see what their stool is. If it's a three or a four. Then you, you know, that's a keeper. That's a girl. <laughs> that's a keeper. <laughs> Um, I'm going to need to see a stool see, sample before we take this any further. This is why we're so big in China. Because <laughs> they love it. Because they love it's it. It's the split pants, dude. Yeah, I know. The split pants are one of the greatest things in the world. I remember I, I was walking. First time I went to India, I had been living in midtown Manhattan. I bought yeah. a one-way ticket to New Delhi. So I was coming from a New York state of mind, mm -hmm. Billy Joel reference, to India and that's a long yeah that's a long trip right so i was probably in india about a month before my head got there <laughs> and i can remember the day the place i remember everything about it and it featured me walking i was in pushkar in rajasthan and i had i was in this cafe where i'd had a bang lassi which is like a Ooh, marijuana lassi. milkshake yeah, yeah, yeah. and i was walking back to this place where i was staying and I started to get this a buzz from the, the milkshake and I'm walking along, it's a dirt road and there's a woman, an old woman up ahead of me and I see her pull up her dress and squat <laughs> in the gutter by the side yep. of the road and I'm walking along and I'm feeling weird like you know, this woman's taking a dump and I'm walking mm -hmm. along and I don't want to stop and I don't know what to do and so I just sort of walk along like it's not, no big deal and as I walk, as I get closer to her, I see she's looking at me and I'm like, don't want to look at her, but she's looking at me. So I look at her and she's got this big smile on her face and she holds out her hand 
like I think she's like wants me to help her up or something. And she just wants some money. So oh my god! So she's like begging, smiling, and taking a dump at the same time. Total wow. lack of shame. Yeah. And I remember just laughing and feeling like, wow, I think yeah. I'm starting to get this place. Yeah. You know, it's just. And then I walked by this cow. Yeah. And the cow just looked at me and I looked at the cow and it was just like, <laughs> all right, I, I kind of get it. Like, you just got to move like a cow yeah. and yeah. slow and steady yeah. and keep it relaxed. And so funny. Yeah. Yeah. So shitting, yeah, shitting's important. Yep. Uh, all right. So we've been pushing, we're pushing two hours here. It feels like we just started. Well, that's how it should be. Hunter Mott's. Well, you know, it's... Uh, it's this so all... easy to chat with you. Well, but, you know, I think that this is a good place to uh, to weave in your favorite T.S. Eliot quote. My favorite T.S. Eliot quote. Uh, the end of all our travels will be to return to where we... But it starts earlier than that. We it's, shall not cease we from... We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our... Ex- of all our travels, our or travels will yeah. be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. And I think that's how it all, all, every single time we podcast, it feels very much like that circular hero's journey. We do a loop. Yep. Loop the loop. Yeah. And each time we go a little bit deeper. All right. Well, thank you for, uh, for appearing on Tangentially Speaking. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on Mixed Mental Arts. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is good. This is like a, a 69 of podcasts. <laughs> In Uncle right. Chris's van. No, I'm going to take you out to the van. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, If you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some t-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design t 
t-shirts. They are fantastic. I know I say this is an ad-free podcast uh, and this could be construed as an ad, but Sure Design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception. Bennett, who was the dude there, decided he was going to support the podcast. He sent me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. Since Bennett died, the people who took over SureDesignT-shirts.com have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? about your reputation trying to meet an expectation wondering what they're gonna say when everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation say <laughs> when everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day so baby what's a big deal if you want to be what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground